BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, have we been duped by the marijuana lobby? Michelle debates with author Alex Berenson about his upcoming book on the dangers of marijuana. Now, you're sort of dismissive of the idea that pot could be regulated. Then the three of us argue about whether it's time to finally legalize it once and for all. The kind of drugs you legalize shape the kind of society you have. And finally, of course, a recommendation. The Christmas season is moving in the wrong direction. For a long time, marijuana was considered a dangerous drug. Marijuana, the burning weed with its roots in hell. But perspectives are changing, and the movement to legalize it has picked up momentum. Today, more than half, 29 of the 50 states, already sell marijuana for medical use. Two-thirds of Americans support legalizing cannabis. Senators finally voted on the liberal government's landmark bill to legalize recreational marijuana. Ten states and Washington, D.C. have voted to legalize it. Just this past week, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced that New York was poised to join that group. Some people even claim that marijuana is harmless. Many others, including some of you, disagree. I am against marijuana legalization. I think that we should try to legislate virtue, not so much generalized vice. I mean, you know, if you, if you smoke in marijuana and you're going to school, you're not going to remember anything anyway. I am absolutely against legalization, even though it's legalized in our state. There's a new book coming out that makes the case against marijuana. It's by Alex Berenson, a former New York Times reporter, and it's called Tell Your Children, The Truth About Marijuana, Mental Illness, and Violence. In the book, Alex argues that marijuana has all kinds of downsides that people aren't paying enough attention to, including psychosis and violence. Michelle read the book, and she wasn't convinced by Alex's argument. So we invited him to come on the show. Here they are. I want to back up and ask you how you came to write this book and how you felt about the fact that you were taking on actually a really kind of bipartisan sacred cow, right? I mean, I actually feel like marijuana legalization is, you know, one of the few things that unites the left in this country with large parts of the right. Uh, these days, that's definitely true. 65% of the country believes, uh, you know, cannabis should be legal. More than 90% of the country believes in medical marijuana. Um, so I came to this the old-fashioned way. My wife told me about it. Um, my wife is a psychiatrist. Uh, she's a forensic psychiatrist, which means she deals generally with people who are uh, criminals. And uh, and she was telling me about the massive amount of crime she saw that was associated with marijuana that was committed by people in her facility, which is up in uh, upstate New York. Um, it's a state-run facility by people who were using at the time of the crime and in some cases, you know, blamed the drug for the crime. So I, I started to look and I was shocked at how powerful the evidence that marijuana causes psychosis is and how powerful the evidence that psychosis causes violence is and how powerful the evidence that marijuana is a, you know, is, is a causative uh, agent in a lot of these crimes is. Let me just start by asking you to lay out your argument. My 
argument at its core is that marijuana causes a ton of psychosis, uh, both temporary and permanent in some cases. And psychosis is very closely associated with violence. Um, A psychosis in people who continue to use marijuana uh, after becoming psychotic is extraordinarily closely linked with violence. And so there is really an epidemic of violent crime uh, related to marijuana in the United States that essentially goes unseen because of a lot of factors, but one of them is sort of failures in the elite media to recognize this phenomenon. Well, let me at go all. back. I mean, what is a ton? So if you if you look, for example, at the statistics around child abuse, severe child abuse, and child fatalities, um, there are some states that collect that data, and they show that about a third, in about a third of cases where children die um, from parental abuse or neglect. The perpetrators, that could be the parent, could be a caregiver, could be somebody else, were using at the time of the crime. That's more than alcohol. It's more than all other illegal drugs combined. If you just sort of try to look at crimes around marijuana dealing, there's hundreds, if not more than a thousand murders a year directly related to uh, cannabis dealing. I'm trying to be conservative with those numbers, but I'm pretty comfortable saying that there are well over a thousand homicides that are uh, marijuana associated in the United States every year. But included in those homicides, do you mean homicides that are involved in drug dealing? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, but again, I'm, tr- I'm trying to be conservative, okay. but yeah. From everything I've read, I mean, I think you're right about the link between marijuana and, and psychosis. But I kept feeling as I was reading this book like you were making certain causal leaps, like when you talk about the role of marijuana in child abuse. I mean, it doesn't seem to me that just because you abandoned your child and smoked a lot of pot that you would not have abandoned your child if you were going to do something else, right? I mean, a few years ago, I don't know if you remember this, there were a ton of articles linking antidepressants to school shootings. And they would say that, you know, you can go through online and just see lists and lists and lists of people who've gone on Prozac or Luxor or something else and committed atrocious acts. I think someone was even held not responsible for a murder in the past because of the effects of antidepressants. Sure. But an equally persuasive argument, it seems to me, is that it's just that people who are troubled in other ways are more likely to be on antidepressants, right? Like the group of people who are on antidepressants is not just a random sample of the general population. Sure. Tell me why you why that isn't true with marijuana, why marijuana is not just, you know, if you're, especially in places where it's illegal, you're a person who kind of lives in a world where people are more likely to break the law. You know, if you, you go and spend a few days in your room getting high all the time, why isn't that just, you know, a symptom rather than a cause? Sure. So... That is probably the the argument that advocates make the most, that you know, correlation is not causation. So with psychosis, I think that that argument has been put to bed. And I can walk you through a number of reasons why. Well, you know, for example, people who uh, have schizophrenia that's controlled will smoke and they will break down again. They will become psychotic again. It's a known risk that, you know, I think even people who sell, you know, cannabis will acknowledge that you can temporarily become psychotic. You know, they call it paranoia sometimes, but it's paranoia that shades into psychosis a lot of times. You can find articles about this. You know, the the, the cannabis community tends to make light of it, but people wind up in the emergency room all the time. And I mean hundreds and of times a day in the United States, people go to the ER with cannabis psychosis. Wait, um, but is that different? Because when I've spoken to experts, they've said that most people who go to the ER because of smoking too much pot or they're with panic attacks. So they're going to get labeled as having cannabis psychosis. I don't think 
cannabis panic attack exists in the literature. You know, it, that may be you may go in and say, you know, I think my friend is is, you know, is going to kill me or something. Or I think I'm having a heart attack. Or I think or I'm having a heart attack. That That's still psychosis. So I don't want to I don't want to say that as unequivocally as I just did. But you're going to get diagnosed with cannabis psychosis. But there's other factors, too. The synthetic cannabinoids, which affect the same receptor as cannabis, which is why they're called the synthetic cannabinoids, can produce really frank, severe psychosis in healthy people that's, that's in some cases, semi-permanent after a single use. So think about, you know, think this about— This is like the stuff that they were selling at It's K2 or Spice, stuff, but... exactly. So that doesn't prove that cannabis causes psychosis. It's just another sign. So, you know, you, you, this is like proving that cigarettes cause lung cancer. It took a long time. You needed a lot of scientific evidence. You needed a, you needed or you wanted a mechanism of action, and you wanted really good epidemiology. And the epidemiology now has been around for 32 years about this, and it all points the same way. And even when you correct for people who have pre-existing psychotic symptoms, it shows that if you smoke in adolescence regularly, you are at a multiplicative risk of getting psychosis. Now, that doesn't mean your risk is, is high, okay? This is not like cigarettes and cancer and lung cancer. It's not like a 25x risk, and it doesn't mean that 90% of the cases of psychosis in the United States are caused by cannabis. That's clearly untrue. It's not like that. And that's why this argument is going to go on and on and on for a while. But on a population-wide basis, there's now a, sig- a significant amount of mental illness, severe mental illness associated with cannabis. So one of the people that I called, you know, after I read your book to sort of like bounce ideas off of is Mark Kleiman, sure. who is very um, smart. Right. And who who I think you thank in the um, in the acknowledgments. Yep. Right. Who co-wrote a book called Marijuana Legalization. Everything you need everything to know. You need so, to yeah, know. Like that. Yes. And, you know, and he's somebody who is pro-legalization, but also skeptical and a critic of a lot of the claims of the cannabis lobby. Yes. And I mean, he definitely argues that, yes, that cannabis is not linked with violence in any significant way and that there has been a measurable increase in cannabis use. How come we don't see a measurable increase in psychosis in the data? (laughs) Sure. I I mean, you may have noticed that the healthcare system in the United States has some flaws. And it has some flaws with data collection, and it has terrible flaws with data collection around mental health. I mean, we just have no idea how many people have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder with psychosis or depressive psychosis or any of these things. I I talked to one epidemiologist, and he said, you know, the number could increase 25%, and you wouldn't even know it. And so there is actually, for the first time in the last few months now, there is some population-level data saying that serious mental illness in the United States has increased substantially among people 18 to 25 that's from a federal survey, a pretty good federal survey. It doesn't specifically uh, hive out schizophrenia or psychosis. So I'm not going to say that we know those things are increasing. But I will tell you that the people who say they know they're not increasing are wrong. Nobody knows. Now, you're sort of dismissive of the idea that pot could be regulated. But I mean, you know, why is that not a reasonable compromise? I mean, to regulate, you know, both to have warning labels to have some sort of regulation about THC content, at least for what's sold in stores. I think that you can wind up with the worst of all worlds if you do that, because if you're going to regulate the amount of THC in cannabis, are you also going to prevent people from buying pure, you know, pure THC products, uh, you know, edibles that contain pure THC or, or, uh, or BHO, butane hash oil, that's basically pure THC. 
And if you're going to ban those, then you're going to create a secondary market in those. So you may wind up with a situation where you have a legalized community that can advocate for the drug and promote the drug, and you have this black market. I think if you're going to legalize, you should allow the legalized market to sell all the products, and you should have a very, very vigorous government effort to tell people why this is a dangerous drug. Okay. I mean, um, that strikes that actually strikes me as a reasonable compromise. Um, in your book, you talk about cannabis's, quote, general uselessness as medicine. But then a little bit earlier, you say the only conditions cannabis or cannabinoids have been proven to treat are chemotherapy-associated nausea and spastic muscles associated with multiple sclerosis. And that's not nothing. Those are two pretty serious indications. Oh, sure. And if you have those things, you should definitely be allowed to use cannabis. Absolutely. But 99.9% of people who are getting medical authorizations are not getting it for those conditions. So your argument is against medical marijuana or just that medical marijuana should be defined more strictly? Uh, I think it should be defined very strictly for the conditions where there is randomized control trial evidence that it works. Then it's a drug like any other drug. I mean, you can we allow people to use opioids under a doctor's care. And there are conditions for which THC has been shown to work. Very, very few. The people who are getting authorizations in most states, in almost every state where uh, medical marijuana is, is legal, are not getting it for those conditions. You know, as someone who smoked a lot of pot when I was younger and then basically outgrew it, I remember the last time I got high, I remember kind of thinking, wow, this is a real drug. Like, I kind of forgot that it was actually mind altering because I just sort of grown to think of it as this like very mild health tonic, like ginseng or something. Um, and so I both agree that it has been completely airbrushed. And I guess where I strongly disagree is in the criminal justice implications of legalization. I mean, my feeling is that you you can convince me that pot is dangerous. I think where I'm not convinced is that making it illegal isn't more dangerous. Right. Something Mark Kleiman pointed out to me, he said, you know, there are half million arrests for cannabis per year. And the public health repercussions of those arrests, of even a night in jail or, you know, what sort of having a drug arrest does to your record going forward, he considers much more serious than what he considers are the real public health risks of cannabis. And, you know, he says there's, I think, also like about a half million people who go to emergency rooms each year with cannabis-related panic attacks or something similar. I just don't agree. I mean, I think the harms are greater than he thinks. I do think that those half million arrests we could deal with in a decriminalized environment. We can we can switch them to violations. But I don't think that dealing and trafficking should be legal. I think that this is a dangerous substance. We have to acknowledge that. And moving to a legalized regime is a mistake. You mentioned opiates before. I mean, you sort of draw parallels in the book between marijuana and the opiate crisis and, you know, kind of people underestimating the dangers of opiates in the past. I mean, do you sort of see it going along a similar trajectory? I do. I think marijuana will probably be legalized. It certainly, uh, certainly looks like there's a lot of momentum for that. And I think in a few years we will wake up and realize that there's a lot of violence associated with it. And then we will have a real problem because there will be a large stakeholder community that doesn't want to go back. Now, the one country that has pretty long experience with if not legalization, I guess, like decriminalization, but also marketing and everything, yes. Netherlands. Yes. Um, 
Have they seen all of these ill effects that you're predicting? So so the Netherlands have actually pushed back in the last few years on decriminalization. They've started to shut some coffee shops. They've made it harder for people who aren't Dutch citizens Right, but I always use. thought that was because they just don't like all these They don't. They don't like pot coming. tourism. That's certainly yeah. true. But they've also seen problems associated with the drug. Now, people ask me, well, how come the Netherlands doesn't have so much psychosis? That even though the Netherlands has this decriminalized re- regime, the Dutch are pretty... They're not really big drug users. They use less cannabis than the U.S. So you can't really look at those two things as correlated. You have to look at how much use there is, not the legal standard of the regime. But, but I will say, you know, the Dutch... One question you could ask yourself is, okay, the Dutch did this. They're in the middle of Europe. They did it almost 40 years ago. How come the rest of Europe didn't move this way if it's such a good idea? How come the French, the Germans, and other countries didn't do this? Well, isn't one reason, I mean, the Dutch are just sort of notoriously... Um, they're pragmatic. Well, I mean, they're, they're, they're pragmatic and they're also sort of libertarian, right? I mean, you could say easily the same thing about the decriminalization of sex work and right like but, the but, dutch just have a different culture than yeah but the, sex work is is uh, decriminalized in germany mm-hmm. yeah uh, no that's true that's true i mean i think there's a misunderstanding in the u.s of how cannabis is treated in europe there's tons of arrests for possession in europe uh you know people always point to portugal and it's true portugal and the netherlands are outliers but in France and Germany and other countries, there's a lot of arrests and there's a lot of judicial activity. But is there any reason to believe that there's more drug-related violence or psychosis in the Netherlands and Portugal than in neighboring countries? I mean, that's... Uh, again, you have, to, you have to ask the question of how much use there is. So the countries that have the most use are not the Netherlands or Portugal. I'm talking about on a, you know, a transatlantic basis. They're the U.S. and Canada. Most psychosis isn't related to cannabis. And even to the extent that psychosis is related to cannabis, it's very, very, very hard to count. So there isn't a lot of great evidence on a population-wide basis that cannabis is causing psychosis yet. But there is some, and the people who say that there isn't any are wrong. Can you talk about just, I mean, I I got the sense reading this book, I mean, that you kind of felt like this sort of Jeremiah, right? (laughs) Cassandra. (laughs) Um, I mean, yeah, like kind of you're I mean, you're kind of you. Can you tell me about, you know, sort of how you evolved from maybe the position you were in where where, when you started the book to sort of where you are now, which is, you know, extraordinarily (laughs) worried about, again, about a drug that I think probably a lot of our listeners assume is sort of harmless. Right. Sure. I I mean, I do think I run the risk of sounding monomaniacal about Mm -hmm. this. Um, And it's unfortunate in part because I am coming at it knowing that so many people are just unconvincible about this. And so it's funny. There's this small group of advocates. And I'm I'm a journalist, okay? I really think of myself as a journalist, not an advocate. But I've sort of been pushed a little bit to become an advocate because – you know, I feel and I, I understand now how some of these people feel that you're sort of shouting into the wilderness, these truths that nobody really wants to hear because, you know, because we all want something for nothing. To some extent, the ancients were right about all this stuff. There's no free lunch and these drugs are dangerous and we do need to discourage people from using them as best we can. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 
37,000. The number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short, that's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. If marijuana was truly a gateway drug, then 75% of the population of people between the age of 30 and 50 would be hardcore drug addicts. And they're not that I'm aware of. We should legalize all illegal drugs because it will keep people out of jail. I am in favor of legalization of recreational marijuana nationwide. Okay, Ross and I are back with Michelle to talk about marijuana. We're going to start by each laying out where the three of us stand. Uh, I'll go first. I'm pretty sympathetic to Alex's case. I think marijuana is more dangerous than many of us have realized. Uh, I think you can see that in the crime rates. I think you can see that in the research that the government has done. And I think we've just kind of gone too far with this idea that marijuana is just fine. Let's move to legalization and essentially be okay with the idea that huge numbers of people who haven't previously used it in our society are going to start using it. Michelle, what about you? So to be honest, I've always been pro-legalization without giving it a huge amount of thought. And I do have to say that Alex's book convinced me in some ways that marijuana had maybe is more dangerous for some people than I had really considered. I mean, Alex makes some good points that there's something really distorted in the way we've kind of culturally come to understand marijuana, at least some of us. That said, I still think that ultimately the social health costs of prohibition are still stronger than the social and health costs of legalization. Ross, what about you? So I guess I'm ultimately less interested in the extreme cases that Alex's book is focused on and more interested in sort of the impact that marijuana has on let's say, the ordinary user, the people who don't end up having psychotic breaks, don't end up committing violent crimes and so on. Um, I mean, I, I found it pretty convincing, but it's often the case that any kind of pleasurable activity has some extreme risks for some people associated with it. And I don't think that you can necessarily leap from, you know, for a f tiny fraction of people, this has this terrible effect to a case for across-the-board criminalization. I'm honestly more worried that the legalization of pot, which seems all but inevitable now, is going to play into this sort of broader social trend where, you know, working class and poor Americans are sort of tacitly encouraged to drop out of normal life. Um, you know, it, when I think of people in my own circles whose lives have been negatively affected by their marijuana use, it's not 
people who've committed violent crimes or ended up with schizophrenia. It's people who just have sort of let themselves drift through life um, and had sort of their energy and their ambition and so on sapped. And I just worry that, you know, the kind of drugs you legalize shape the kind of society you have. And it seems like leaning into marijuana in the way that we're leaning into it is likely to essentially create a situation where we're tacitly encouraging people who are marginally attached to the workforce, marginally attached to society to tune in and drop out. So one of the experts I spoke to, Mark Kleiman, cited a colleague of his who said that we're having a Whole Foods conversation about what's really a Walmart phenomenon. So that the discussion about marijuana and its safety and tends to focus around sort of upscale occasional users when really a lot of the people who are using marijuana and using it heavily are people who, you know, didn't go to college, who are the sorts of people who are threatened with some of the social ills that that Ross is really worried about. Um, so I think you can take that seriously. At the same time, those are also the people, I think, whose lives are most likely to be derailed by a marijuana arrest. Michelle, Mark thinks that we should decriminalize without commercializing, right? He basically thinks that the ship has sailed on legalization, that you kind of can't, once you decriminalize and once you have medical marijuana, then it becomes sort of de facto legalization. And so what he favors is legalization, but extremely heavy regulation, which is not really what we have right now. But what, is, what does that mean for like the development of big cannabis, right? Because I, I think, I mean, I think one of the reasonable concerns, again, with this sort of Walmart problem is that you end up with not just sort of the random head shop selling it, but you have sort of aggressive attempts to create and enlarge markets for this product. Right. So I don't want to channel him on this, but I would just say personally, it seems like one of the one of the useful regulations would be regulating DHC content. Marijuana today is just vastly more powerful than marijuana was, you know, 20 years ago. And that there's all these sorts of new derivatives that are almost 100 percent THC. And it seems like, you know, just as we regulate alcohol content in spirits and liquor, why aren't we doing the same thing with marijuana if we're going to treat it in a similar way? Michelle, you mentioned the trade-off a minute ago, and it seems to me there are two big harms here. So one is the harm from many more people using a lot more marijuana. Um, and I don't really take seriously the argument, and neither one of you is making this argument, but the argument that somehow marijuana is good for you. I think it pretty clearly has a bunch of risks and health downsides. And so that to me is a substantial harm. And I'm not persuaded, well, alcohol also has harms, thus we should legalize marijuana because um, alcohol is already legal, right? And the idea of legal, fully legalizing marijuana means a lot more people are going to use it, which would lead to these harms. But the harm on the other side is the one we're talking about now, which is the idea that for a lot of people being arrested for marijuana use can derail their lives the same way that becoming a drug addict can derail someone's life. And so, I mean, it seems to me the solution that we want here is one that doesn't lead to big cannabis, as Ross says, trying to persuade a lot more people to use marijuana and doesn't leave 14 and 15 year olds thinking, well, marijuana is perfectly fine to use, but also doesn't lead to lots of people being arrested and having their lives upended for holding a joint 
Doesn't that seem right? Right. So right now we have effectively, I think, decriminalization in New York. But nevertheless, you still have all of the social ills and dangers that surround dealing, even if you legalize possession. In some ways, it sort of recalls the debate over sex work. I'm not sure if it's exactly analogous, but to me, I don't see a way to decriminalize without still, you know, sort of criminalize the industry writ large and as a way to discourage it. Right. Sweden criminalizes pimping and being a john. Right. And I'm somewhat sympathetic to that model when it comes to sex work. Nevertheless, it does end up having negative effects on sex workers, even as it discourages the normalization of sex work. And in a way, that's sort of like the most unjust scenario in certain ways, right, that I can call up someone night or day and have high-quality marijuana delivered to my door, but the person making that delivery is in danger of arrest. I guess one separate thing that interests me is, what are the politics of all this? I mean, do you think this is actually an issue that can drive voting decisions? It's clear that marijuana legalization is very popular among younger people, and it's clear that Democrats are sort of becoming the party of marijuana legalization. But is this destined to just be a secondary issue, or or can it actually play a role in national politics? So I think it'll play a role in national politics in part because, like it or not, there is a nascent marijuana industry that's going to have pull. And also marijuana legalization is really popular. I mean, I disagreed with a lot in Alex's book, but I actually thought it was sort of brave for him to take a stance that is so unpopular, both with almost the entire left and much of the right, right? Like marijuana legalization might be one of the only bipartisan issues out there. You know, Roger Stone works on behalf of marijuana legalization. John Boehner works on behalf of marijuana legalization, right? Like this is the true thing that we can, you know, hold hands across the partisan divide on. You know, and that's one reason why marijuana legalization is, I think, a a juggernaut. One reason why it's kind of happening in state after state after state, right? If you can pass a law that is really popular with most of your constituents and that's going to give you a ton of new tax money, you're going to do it. Right. I think that's right. I mean, it's not an issue. I I don't think it's a primary voting issue for anything larger than a tiny fraction of the society. But it's like a nice secondary voting issue. It's a way of sort of virtue signaling to young people that you're cool and on their side, maybe especially for a certain kind of Republican who's desperate to do that. And it plays into an existing and growing industry. And there's nobody against it except, I guess, maybe me and David and, and Alex Berenson. I mean, I think my, my worry here, just I guess to go back to where I started, is just that, I mean, I think Alex, you know, you asked him, Michelle, about could this be like opioids and, you know, will there be this moment when we realize five or 10 or 15 years down the line, oh, we've made this huge mistake. And I don't think that's going to happen because – Again, in my reading of the data, I just don't think the extreme cases are going to be commonplace enough to have that kind of cultural backlash. So my, my concern is that we're basically just sort of drifting into this. There's never going to point, going to come a point where there's sort of enough shocking stories to make anybody reconsider. But it's going to play into a lot of the worst social trends in American life, trends of sort of disconnection and 20-something male idleness especially. And in the world of Whole Foods and medical marijuana, nobody's going to care. 
Michelle, where do you think we end up 10 years from now? Um, you know, it's a good question. I mean, because in some ways, I think one of the places to look is to the Netherlands, which has, you know, done this quite a while ago, right? I mean, it's not fully legal, but it's decriminalized and commercialized. That said, I mean, Americans are just excessive in general about sugar. We're excessive about alcohol. We're excessive about violence. And so if America was a less dysfunctional culture, we would be able to handle this, I think, much more smoothly. You've both been willing to make a prediction, so I'll close us out by making one as well. I guess I think this will largely follow the path of alcohol, which to me is a much more pessimistic prediction than many people would hear it as. Prohibition, which of course we think of as this terrible chapter in American history, had huge public health benefits because it led Americans to consume a lot less alcohol, which led to a lot less diseases of many kinds. And so I assume we'll basically see the opposite here, that marijuana legalization will grow and there will be um, all kinds of diseases and social ills that will increase. They won't increase so much that there'll be a huge backlash and that we'll just kind of accept legal marijuana the same way we accept legal alcohol. But it will be a net negative for society, which is why I hope people like Alex Berenson continue to write books that uh, bravely take the other side. It's time for our weekly recommendation when we recommend something that lets you take a little bit of a break from politics. This week is Ross's turn. Ross, what do you have for us? Well, David, it's the holiday season. And as you know, there's, you know, all this reliable political controversy over whether it's more appropriate to say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays during the last frenzied weeks before December 25th. And so my recommendation is a little bit sectarian, but I think it could be usefully applied to anyone who celebrates Christmas, um, which is that we should stop pretending that the period from December 1st to December 24th is something called the Christmas season. And we should stop wishing people Merry Christmas generally during the entire three weeks before Christmas because it's not Christmas. It's Advent. If you want to say Happy Advent, that's fine. But just strip the war on Christmas out of the first three weeks of December and then take Christmas and celebrate it the way it's supposed to be celebrated as a 12-day extravaganza that carries you all the way into January. And again, there are you know theological reasons for this and so on, but I think it's just a better system for the culture as a whole. I think one of the nice things about Christmas is that it brightens up the winter, but as it is, it only brightens up the first few days of winter. And I think if you let Christmas sprawl all the way to Epiphany and the Feast of the Three Kings, buy your tree late, listen to Advent carols instead of Christmas carols in the first three weeks, don't say Merry Christmas, and basically reclaim the first few weeks of December for something other than the Christmas holiday itself. That's a recipe for total chaos, right? I mean, you want people to say Merry Christmas on January 1st? Absolutely. That's the only, that's much more appropriate than saying it on December 12th. I'm fascinated by this because 
I've always sort of objected to the idea of happy holidays, right? I actually thought it was kind of a Christmas-centric thing, right? Hanukkah is not the most important Jewish holiday or anything close to it. And so this idea of happy holidays kind of pretends that other religions have their important holidays now. And I actually kind of always liked the idea of saying Merry Christmas to people who celebrate Christmas and saying Happy New Year or nothing at all to people who don't. You're, to some extent, it sounds like you're pushing us toward happy holidays when we're not in the full Christmas window. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we could just say nothing at all in the full Christmas window, say Happy Hanukkah to your Jewish friends, and the rest of the time just sort of, you know, go about your business in a kind of present buying and preparatory way without, I mean, look, the, the deeper problem here is that the Christmas season is moving in the wrong direction, right? Christmas is supposed to, supposed to sprawl into winter. It's supposed to start right around the darkest day of the year and carry you well into winter. And instead, it ends on December 26th, and it's sprawling in the opposite direction. So it's going way into late November. You know, the Christmas decorations go up even before Thanksgiving in some cases. So it's, it's colonizing the wrong time of year. And I'm interested. I, I think that this turn, again, I don't think it solves the happy holidays dilemma, Um but I think it's it, it at least gives Christmas a sort of a different and better psychological role as something that sort of carries you into the darkest part of the year instead of something that, you know, is sort of eating November. <laughs> so break down the full calendar for us. The way it's supposed to work is what Catholics like me call ordinary time goes up to the the end of the end of November, the start of December. And then you get you know, the three and a half weeks of the Advent season, which is supposed to be about sort of preparing for this moment. You know, God is coming into the world, get ready. And then you're supposed to sort of explode into the old, you know, on the first day of Christmas, you know, that sort of old fashioned, we're going to feast for 12 days kind of spirit. That's that's old school Christmas. Um, and so you have hymns, you know, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that's an Advent hymn. Joy to the world, that's a Christmas hymn. And you're not supposed to play them at the same time. Well, Michelle, happy early New Year. And Ross, happy Advent. <laughs> Thank you, David. Happy, happy Advent and Hanukkah. And Hanukkah's over, you guys. Fair enough. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. And if you have questions or comments about the show, leave us a voicemail, 347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. If you do, we may play you on the show. This week's show was produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media with help from Caitlin Pierce. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Freddie Chavez. Thank you to Kaiser Health News. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown, and we'll be back in two weeks. Really chill, just so chill right now. <laughs>